Good morning. I missed you all. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. I missed you. It's been weeks. It's been three weeks. And it feels like forever. Um, so here's my favorite story, the week before Thanksgiving. By the way, I've heard from a number of you that you enjoyed Ken Brannon teaching, which I love hearing that. I think he is super. Um, and so I'm glad you got a chance to get to know him a little bit better two weeks ago. I was in London with the annual Compass Rose meeting. So some of you may know that St. Michael is one of a few dozen churches and seminaries and institutions that are a member, that is a member of what is called the Compass Rose Society that helps support the Archbishop of Canterbury's global ministry around the world. Once a year, we get together in London and we hear about what's going on in different parts of the what we call the Anglican Communion, which is Episcopalians, Anglicans around the world doing ministry. And so that was what that meeting was. And here's my favorite story. I was walking in front of Buckingham Palace and I was pointing something out and I said to a friend, you know, oh, the gate's open, I wonder. And right when I said the gate is open, a security officer came in and said, hey, would you all just stand right there? And I said, yes. I mean, there were maybe eight or 10 of us standing there. And I looked and the blue lights are coming and I knew it was Andrew coming to get spanked, right? <laughs> I knew Andrew was getting in trouble. Um, and so I pulled out my phone and I wanted to just take a video of it. And as they pass right in front of us, no, it was Elizabeth. It was the queen. Just kind of drive right. She was right there in her car. And I saw it through my phone. And I went, oh, that, that was the queen. I mean, just right there in the car. Um, she did not wave at me, but that's okay. And then my favorite part, though, was afterwards, the security guard said, okay, thanks all. Cheers. And just walked away. And I thought that was just so British. Just nonchalant and easy. It was great. So I saw the queen. Thank you. Okay. It was great. It was great. All right. So today we have chapters 15 and 16 of Genesis, and we've got today and next week. That's it for, the, for this year. So if you've got your bookmark, if you don't have a bookmark yet, you can pick one up at the doors. This is the schedule. We've got this week and next week, and then we're off for a few weeks, and we'll be back in January. Next week, we will have the spring bookmarks available for you, and we will also send this information out over email. So if you're not able to be here next week, we will confirm in writing for you when we will gather again in January to do the second half of Genesis. But today we've got chapters 15 and 16, and then next week we finish up with chapters 17 and the first half of 18. You will notice that I'm only going through the first half of 18 this calendar year. I'm saving Sodom and Gomorrah to 2020. Okay. That is not what I decided to do before Christmas. So we'll do that when we come back in the new year. Let's start off with a prayer and we'll get going. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for all the many blessings of our lives. And we ask that you fill us up with your spirit today. Open us up and make space inside of us. Help us quiet the rush and the anxiety of this season that we can focus on you for a bit, that we can root ourselves in the scriptures that you have handed down to us. And in doing so, help remain centered that as we prepare for Christmas and for a new year, that we can stay centered and focused on you. Use us as tools, the work that you do in the world you love. Be with our friends who cannot be with us today and be especially with those who need your healing touch. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
And I apologize, I had one other announcement. Being that this is a season of Advent and we're preparing for Christmas, one of the signature outreach projects that we do here at St. Michael in the season of Advent is I Believe in Angels. We put together a really lovely experience of Christmas for our friends at Jubilee Park. If you are unfamiliar with Jubilee, it's in Southeast Dallas near Fair Park. It's a 62 block community that has been kind of redeveloped over the last 20 years. And I believe in Angels gives that community a really excellent Christmas moment. We gather toys together and we offer the people in that community some toys to help fill out their Christmas. You will see in the hallway after Bible study that we've got some volunteers who are here to help you to participate in I Believe in Angels. This is both for children and it also goes toward helping have a senior moment of Christmas at Jubilee Park as well. If you're interested in participating, even if you don't go to St. Michael, We'd love for you to stop by the table and get some more information. You can either pick up a card and bring a gift to the church or just make a financial donation and they will go out and shop for the toys for these families. It's a lovely program and it's something that we've done for years and years and years and we'd love for you to be a part of it. All right, Genesis chapter 15. So let's remember how we got here. We are now in what I called a few weeks ago kind of real history-ish. We are probably in the period of time where these people really did do most of these things. Most of these things. This is still an oral tradition. Stories that were told over and over again for generations and generations, hundreds and hundreds of years before they were written down. And as we all know, we can't get around a room playing telephone with the same story. So the oral tradition was refined and expanded and developed over those hundreds of years, but it's probably still rooted in some real people. So we are in this phase with Abraham. We started with creation. Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden. We had Cain and Abel, that didn't work out so well. Then we got Seth and we got a new line that led to Noah. Again, didn't work out that well. Noah was saved and he and his sons kind of repopulated the earth. Fast forward a few hundred years and we find ourselves with Abraham. Abraham has moved from what is today sort of that kind of southeast Iraq and come up and around down into what is today Israel. So Abraham is now in and around the nation of Israel today, and Abraham is receiving a promise from God. Now, we've already gone through a few interesting exploits of Abraham. Abraham, Abraham is a faithful person, but he's also, he makes mistakes. And he has made a number of mistakes that has led us to chapter 15. But God has not let him go. What we see really with the beginning of Abraham's story, but we've really already seen this, is that God uses the imperfections of humanity to help forward his purposes. That is a critical under idea for us to understand. We see this over and over and over. The people who are most useful to God are the ones who tend to be the most messy people. That should be, I hope, good news for us, all right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I wish I were less messy. I think we probably all wish we were a little less messy, 
But we can rest assured that no matter our mess, God can use us. And that's the kind of faithfulness that Abraham is. We can look at Abraham's story and show that he is a super messy person. He makes plenty of mistakes, mistakes we would likely not make. And yet, God still uses him. And so we're sort of in the middle of Abraham's story. And part of what we see today is Abraham beginning to live out the promises that God has made to him up to this point. Abraham and his wife, Sarah. Now, note, their names are not Abraham and Sarah yet. Their names are still at this point, Abram and Sarai. I can do that if you want me to, but I'm kind of just rolling with Abraham and Sarah because it's a little easier. They will become Abraham and Sarah. At this point in the story, their names have not been changed and they have not had any children. For some of us, the idea of children might not seem so critical, but as a reminder to us at this period of time, children were security. If you did not have children, you had some logistical troubles, like you had no heir. But if you don't have children, there is a bit more of a fundamental concern. You will at some point get old, uh, God willing, and once you get to a point where you can no longer physically work and support yourself, if you don't have kids, no one's really able to support you. There are a few laws that develop over time around siblings and other people who might take you in and keep you safe, but at this point in time, this is still a very ancient culture. Your children are the ones who keep you safe. They're the ones who take care of you in your old age. Abraham and Sarah at this point are getting up there. In the scriptures, they are in their 60s and 70s as we go into chapter 15. Now we might, if we actually took their whole lifespan and reduced it down to about 90 or 100 years, something that we seem, that we might think is reasonable long life today, they would still be at the nearing the last phase of childbearing age. They would probably be in their late 30s or mid 40s, which even today, if you're 40 and haven't had kids yet, you're pushing it. I'll never forget one of my best friends in Memphis. She finally got married and she got pregnant at 36. And she came back from her first appointment with her OB and was sad, and I said, what's wrong? Is something wrong with the baby? And she said, no, nothing's wrong with the baby. But she said, I found out that because of my age, I have a geriatric pregnancy. <laughs> Which I want you to know, I reminded her of all the time, right? With love, that she had a geriatric pregnancy. But as we know, you know, if you are in your 40s and having a child, that's not easy, physically speaking, that taxes a body even more than a normal pregnancy. Sarah and Abraham are probably that kind of age. They're likely not 80s, like the story says, because they also didn't live to be 200. But if you reduce that down, we're talking about old enough to where, like, clock is ticking, and they've not been able to have children, and at this point, maybe it's too late. They don't know. And as we enter chapter 15, they're beginning to get worried. So let's look at chapter 15, verse 1. 
The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Jump to verse 5. God brought Abram outside and said, Look toward heaven and count the stars. If you are able to count them, then God said to him, So shall your descendants be. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Just before chapter 15, Abram's given an opportunity to receive a big payout. If you remember from a couple weeks ago, the king of Sodom offered Abram a lot of wealth, and Abram turned it down. Abram turned that down because he had faith that God had promised something to him, and he wanted to remain faithful to God. So Abram, in this moment, has turned away from some big payoff and is kind of wondering, okay, God, like you said something would happen. I've declined a number of opportunities. What really is going to happen? And God comes to Abram in this vision and says, listen, don't be worried about it. I'm your shield. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to keep you safe. I will fulfill my promises. And he goes out in the first of multiple moments like this and says, look at the stars. Your descendants will be like the stars. Oh, that's a lovely sentiment, except he has no children. And so at this point, that promise, although potential, has not been realized in any physical sense. And so Abram is effectively kind of wondering if God's really going to come through on this promise. Now, I've noted before that in the story of Abram, we've got a very interesting dynamic. God's promises to Abraham are all promises that will be fulfilled later. That's not always the case. Sometimes in Scripture, God makes promises that will be fulfilled in someone's lifetime, not Abraham. Abraham's promises really all come to fruition much later on. And that's a difficult dynamic. If you can put yourself in Abraham's shoes, it's not easy to have someone promise you something and you just kind of have to go with it. I mean, you may not ever see any physical evidence that any of those promises will come true, but Abraham remains faithful. Let's jump to verse 12. Abram at this point is still not terribly certain that God's promises are going to come true. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know this for certain that your offspring shall be aliens in a land that is not theirs and shall be slaves there and they shall be oppressed for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. All right. We put all these little pieces together. Abram's declined wealth, wondering if God's faithfulness is true, if his promises will really come true. He's questioned God multiple times. God has said, yes, this is true a few different times. Now he's received this kind of clarity vision moment where God is speaking to him. And what God says has a bit more specificity than just look at the stars, right? God says, know this, your offspring will be aliens in a foreign land. 
They will be held as slaves for 400 years, and then they will leave with a lot of possessions. That's a lot of little stuff. So not only will you have offspring, which he doesn't yet, they will be enslaved for 400 years, and then they're going to leave with a lot of stuff. That's a very weird promise, right? This is not normal. Abram's really kind of thinking, I'd like a child. God's like, well, this is really what's going to happen. That's, it's strange. It's weird. And it's accurate. So in this story, any Israelite, any Jew reading this story would know God's promises is real because God's promise of 400 years of slavery is pretty much exactly what happens to the Israelites in Egypt. Now, as critical Bible studiers, do you think that God was foretelling or prophesying some super accurate moment that will come hundreds of years from that point? If your answer is yes, that is fine. As I read this story, I read this as a very refined retelling of a story. So could the original story have been something like, yes, Abraham, you're gonna have some children and not everything's gonna be smooth. Okay, that sounds good. That kind of message from God is the kind of message that we might sort of discern ourselves today. Life is not easy. It's not gonna be everything you want it to be. There will be bumps along the way remain faithful. Well, fast forward to the exile, and as people are putting the story together, doesn't it sound a whole lot better for them to say that God foretold all of the enslavement in Egypt and the exodus out of Egypt? That sounds good. As a Jew, it would be great to read this story because then what? Not, hey, God was right back then, God is right right now. Remember that these people are themselves enslaved. They've been taken out of their land. They are in exile in Babylon. They are being hopeful to what God has promised through the prophets that they will be delivered. That could feel like a pipe dream when they're in the moment, except God said this before, and God was right. So if God's saying that now, God will be right again. Does that all make sense? That's the kind of critical look at stories like this that I want you to kind of get comfortable with. That did God really say 400 years to Abraham? Well, eh, I mean, it's fine if you wanna say yes. But I think it makes more sense to me that the people writing this story were trying to empower and comfort the people that they were literally with in the moment of the exile, rather than looking at a total historic accuracy of something that happened hundreds of years earlier. Okay. Any questions about that before we shift into the birth of Ishmael? So the question is, what does it say about free will? Uh, are you asking... What does it say about free will if God is, um, I don't want to say planning. 
if God has almost planned or foretold certain things would happen? Good question. You probably know me well enough by now to know I, I don't think these conversations were really happening. I think that what people are doing is discerning what happened as being part of God's work in the world. Now notice, I do not talk about God's plan. You've heard me say this before. God's plan is problematic. If God has a plan, then the way I understand plan is those things will happen that way. So all of you sitting here either are in something hard or have gone through something hard. Do you like, that's not the question I want to ask. Do you think based on your experience of God through scripture that God planned for that hard thing to happen to you? Now, maybe some of you say yes. That is okay. It is okay. There are lots and lots of people who absolutely faithfully believe that God has a plan. Any bad thing that happened, that's part of God's plan, and they're going to stay faithful, and it's fine. That is fine. However, for me, in, in, a, in a systematic theological way, right, which effectively means I do think that things fit in a certain way, that if if this, then that, right? A kind of in a, a logical structure, you can't have two things that are sort of contradictory. To me, one of the truths is that God is all loving. Okay, if God is all loving, then actually causing pain is not a loving thing. Being with us in the pain and helping us turn the pain into something good, helping us heal from the pain, that to me is love. So it makes more sense that God does not cause the pain, which then mean God does not plan the pain, but instead God's with us in it. I think I've said it in here before, but it, it's kind of annoying because it's so kitschy. But I grew up, my grandmother had that footprints poem on the wall. And I remember every Sunday supper, I would stare at that footprint. I had a particular seat at the table, right? You know how everyone's got their place. And it just happened that the footprints prayer was like right over my mother's shoulder um, where we sat. And so I would just kind of look at it when the conversation would lull and I would read it over and over and over. And it's, it's so cheesy, except, I mean, I kind of think it's right where God's with us all the way, and we don't often think so, right? Like, why is there only one set of footprints when the going got hard? God said, well, I carried you. Yeah, that, I think there's a lot of truth in that. That is what I mean by God's work. So different than plan, because God's in it, God's active, God's with us, but God's also giving us the choice. And so when God predicts like this in chapter 15, I immediately have a little red flag to say, okay, if I don't think God is predicting the future, what really is happening here? Why would they tell this story this way? Well, this one's kind of blatantly obvious. It happened. And the people in the exile know it happened. And so their story is such that 
their, their religious identity was shaped at Sinai after they were brought out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses. Okay, that's where, the, that's where Judaism roots itself. At this point, Abraham is not Jewish. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, none of them are Jewish. They're Israelites. They are Semitic. They're not Jews. Nobody is Jewish until Sinai, and they receive the Ten Commandments. Does that make sense? And that may not have been something I've ever said to you. So these, these are not Jewish people at this time in the story. Now, Jews are writing this story, and they probably... I have to think that the Jews who are hearing these stories don't differentiate between Jewish, not Jewish, in the same way that I think it's difficult for us as Christians to read the Gospels and not think that all of those people were also Christian, right? They're not. Jesus was a Jew. All of his followers were Jews. Everybody in Acts of the Apostles, they're all Jews. Christians, as we think of them, really is not for a century at least before we begin to refine what it actually means to not just be a Jew who follows Jesus, right? That's really what the first century was. They're all Jews who just thought the Messiah had come. It doesn't shift for at least a generation, if not a hundred years. In the same way, Abraham, not Jewish, but they're telling a story that will meet the needs of Jews at that moment in the exile in Babylon. So I think, bless you, I think that God predicting the future is not only a comfort, but also consistent with religion at that time, right? Ancient religious peoples always had some way of predicting the future, right? There were oracles and people who could divine God's purposes. And this is just in line with that kind of thinking. The idea that God doesn't predict the future is a relatively modern concept. If you look at most of Christian theology, I think that most Christian theologians would say, yeah, God is at the wheel deciding all of these things. Free will is not as impactful until you get at least the Reformation. But even really, it's more of a modern sensibility. Does that answer your question? Not really. Um, I'm sorry, you should see her face. She's like... Um, I don't think it undermines free will because I think that we have to read this story as written at a particular time for a particular group of people, and they are not us. We can be inspired by it, but we don't have to be bound by it. We can read it critically and say, did God literally say those words? And I am super comfortable saying no. But was God active in Abraham's life, inspiring him and helping him all along the way? Absolutely in the same way that God's active in our lives. How's that? A lot less words than what I said before. Go ahead, Madeline. I see you want another question. Yeah, so, by the way, is that true? Oh, 
I'm sitting there thinking, like, I had no idea. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Um, so, okay, so th- that story may not be true, but I'm, I'm looking at some of you, and I know some of you have lost children. Okay, so we can go right at the hardest thing that can happen, right, is losing a child, probably. Um, I mean, I would say, for me, yeah, I'm going to go with that, okay? Or a grandchild or something like that, right? Hardest. Um, Did God cause that? Oh my gosh, no. However, I have multiple times in a pastoral sense let that go. If a family is sitting with me after a child dies and they said, well, you know what? It was part of God's plan and that is what they need right then, they can have it. That is okay. Theologically speaking, I don't think that's true. But if that allows them to effectively cope with what is so overwhelming, go right ahead. It is okay. I think for us in a situation like this, we get a chance to vet these ideas, hopefully before something really horrible happens. Now, for many of us, we've probably had a horrible thing happen, but hopefully we've got a little distance at this point where we can reflect with a little bit more um, balance, you know, where the emotions aren't completely overwhelming us. And we can look back critically and say, okay, no, I don't think God did that. And even if you thought that in the moment, it is, God doesn't cause us pain. God heals our pain. And so where does the pain come from? Well, the pain comes from our own choice of not God. And that's, that's a bigger concept, but it's sort of like choosing evil, right? When we started in creation in the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve choose to act against God's will, that is a human reality. When we choose to do anything away from God. And so I typically say, when we choose not God, which grammatically is not proper, but it kind of is the catch-all of what isn't godly, what we have done is we have allowed a crack to open and let what is not God in. And so we can call that evil, we can call that sin, we can call that any number of things, and different traditions call it different things. But effectively what it is, is it's not God. The more we do that, the more not God there is. And then the pain and the heartbreak become more and more frequent. That does not mean that the more faithful you are, the less pain and heartbreak you will have, no. It's just a human condition. We're in a broken world, right? We will experience pain, period. It is nothing we did. It is not our fault. Um, I, I have noted, having grown up Catholic, I always, even though I, I don't blame the tradition, but I do think there was this sense of if something bad happened, I helped that bad thing happen. And so I had to somehow fix that. So you get the bargaining kind of praying and I do this every time I get on an airplane. 
I still do it, where I'm like, hey, listen, you know? <laughs> um, so I know I wasn't like really the best last week and everything, but if you just please keep this plane from crashing, that'd be great. Um, you know, I know that is not how that works. <laughs> that God is not doing it that way. I'm still gonna say that prayer, just in case. Um, but I am, I know that's not how it works. I still have in me, because of the way I was raised, that God's love is somehow conditional on me being good. I like that I see in my own children who've been raised in the Episcopal Church, they just think God loves them. I mean, isn't that nice? Um, I know that, but you can't kind of shake the way you were raised, I don't think, not fully. And so I think for many of us, we've got whatever that is to kind of wrestle with and to try and reason our way out. And that works most of the time until it doesn't. And when something happens that is too overwhelming, we just go down to the gut and whatever we were given early on in our life flares out. And that's why we need each other, right? We can't do this on our own. And that's why we've got a community like this so that when that really bad thing happens, someone else lifts us up because we can't always lift ourselves up. And that kind of imperfection and vulnerability is really why church matters, I think. All right, yes, one more. Well, you know, I'm not, I am not a gentle person to ask my children. Um, but I do think that we all need to be gentle with each other when we are really hurting. Um, and I think that kind of gentleness matters. And so what Marianne said was, I think exactly right. It's what I believe that God can take something horrible and make it good. God did not cause the horrible thing, but in absolutely take a bad thing and make it good. And I've seen that happen in other ways. And I also know for me, and of course, you know, clergy, we see illness and death and that stuff every week. I mean, someone's, someone tells me they have cancer three or four times a week. Someone tells me someone died every day. Someone, that's just kind of the world that we are in. Um, and when I've seen, I often see people take that pain and transform it with such power that it becomes an inspiration to other people. And I regularly offer my own prayer that I don't need any of that. Um, I have a friend who years ago, his three-year-old son had a low fever. I mean, like 101, right? Any parent knows 101 is like, just leave it off. So he just said, well, we'll go to the doctor tomorrow if, you know, if it's still, if it's higher or something like that, a little Motrin and then go to bed and woke up the next morning and the child had died. I mean, just, they had no idea. The doctors could not figure out what had happened. It was one of those things where they made, they did nothing wrong. It was just a fluke, right? And so sitting with him a couple weeks later, he was talking about, the, he was a pastor, by the way, Lutheran pastor. And he took a few weeks from his church, right? I mean, at that point, you're not preaching like the next Sunday, that sort of thing. And so, we were talking this through and it somehow came up in the conversation and I said to him, I said, you can punch me if you want to, but you now have a chance to speak from a place of profound pain about the strength of love. 
And I said, I don't want that. I don't want to be able to speak like that, but now we can. And that's the kind of transformation I think God in his faithfulness can help us turn what is horrible into something that actually can in a real profound way inspire people to grow closer and closer to God. So, okay, it's, I've got to get to Ishmael because this is important. So thank you. That was lovely. Shift. So chapter 16, I've spoken about barrenness in the Bible. Barrenness is a recurring theme. Having trouble getting pregnant is something that will come up multiple times in Genesis. So we'll, we're beginning a cycle and you will see that in Judaism, in Jewish storytelling, really in storytelling in general, you can tell the same story with different people and it's the redundant loop. And so we're beginning a loop here that will happen multiple times. Sarah and Abraham cannot get pregnant. It really becomes Sarah can't get pregnant. So as we shift into chapter 16, Sarah's going to have to figure out how to resolve this problem. Okay, chapter 16. Now Sarah, sorry, now Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children. She had an Egyptian slave girl whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, you see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my slave girl. It may be that, I'm sorry, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after, so after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her slave girl, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived. All right, there's a lot happening right here. Sarah at this point cannot conceive a child. Now we can very fairly say, is it really Sarah's issue or is it Abraham's issue? Well, it turns out maybe it was Sarah's. So Abram receives Hagar, not as a mistress, but as another wife. It was very common in the ancient world to have multiple wives because having children was so critical. There is a passing on of wealth, there is security, there is work, there is a development of one's estate. Abraham would have had a large amount of responsibility, a lot of people working for him. And Sarah, in a sense, as kind of the first lady, understood that if she cannot have kids, somebody's got to have kids. And so it is not unusual that Sarah, as sort of the first wife, would bring in other women in order to bear more children. It is an interesting dynamic because it's not adultery in some way, and it's not some weird surrogacy. It is Abraham having more wives. Sarah, though, chooses Hagar. So who is Hagar? Hagar is an interesting character because we are now getting into our story that is repeated in other sacred texts, including the Quran. So you probably already know Ishmael is the way in which Muslims root themselves to Abraham. So the story of Abraham and Sarah and then Hagar and Ishmael is prominent in the Quran because that's the way that Muslims root themselves. So Hagar in the Quran 
is an Egyptian princess. In Jewish teachings, there are writings around Hagar being an Egyptian princess. But in the Bible, it's not there. In the Bible, Hagar is just a slave girl. That's it. However, if both the Jewish and the Islamic traditions have something about her being an Egyptian princess, that is theoretically possible, right? Abram and Sarah went down into Egypt. The Pharaoh had taken Sarah into his harem. Abram had received some wealth. Then Pharaoh realized that Sarah was Abraham's wife and that didn't work out. You need to leave and was given some wealth as they left Egypt. It is totally conceivable that Hagar would have been one of Pharaoh's daughters. Totally reasonable. Because Pharaoh, like any other kind of king, would have had lots of wives and would have had lots of children by all those wives. And many of those children, especially the girls, would not have had any kind of tangible value, except by creating links and relationships with other people in other places. And so if Abraham was a person who was going to have some kind of wealth over in Israel next door to Egypt, it makes perfect sense that Pharaoh would think, okay, take one of those daughters that isn't gonna do anything for me anyway and give her to Abraham and then if Abraham takes her as a wife and has children, now those children are biologically linked to the Egyptian Pharaoh. That's good for everybody. Does that all make sense? Okay. We do not get that in Scripture. So we just need to know that Hagar in Scripture is slave girl. But Hagar is not, is not a mistress, and this is not adultery. This is taking on another wife. So... Hagar gets pregnant, and that is a problem. Look at, we're going to go back to verse 4, second half of verse 4. When Hagar saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress, that is Sarah. Then Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave you my slave girl to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, your slave girl is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she ran away. All right. What is happening here is Sarah brings in a young woman. She gets pregnant. She, Hagar, starts to feel pretty good right? Because Sarah couldn't get pregnant, but Hagar could get pregnant. And so now Hagar is bearing Abraham's one and only heir. She's a little too puffed up. And so Sarah gets mad at Abraham for what? Doing what she said? But Abraham says to Sarah, listen, you're in charge, right? She belongs to you. Do whatever you want. So Sarah begins to take out her frustration on Hagar. Hagar, in her hurt, runs away. Is that all clear? So Hagar has run away. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her, Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, slave girl of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? 
She said, I am running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. Interesting moment. Hagar has run away because she has been hurt by Sarah. But the angel of the Lord, okay, that's a big moment. Angel appears to Hagar and says, you need to go back, even though it's going to be hard, and then makes a promise. This is a very big moment, all right? Promises don't get made to women pretty much ever in Scripture. We can count on one hand the time that happened. And to a second wife who is not even an Israelite, okay? This is, this is big. The promise is that Hagar's descendants will be so many they cannot be counted. This story remains with the Arab people for generations and generations and generations until they receive the word from God that is for them. And that moment is when Muhammad receives the Quran. All right, so it's important for us to understand that that moment of the angel appearing to Hagar in global history is very significant because not only is it important that God is being kind. We can read this in one of two ways. We can read this as God's being nice to a poor woman who did nothing wrong, right? Maybe she got a little prideful, but you know, we, we've all done that. But she's really done nothing wrong and Sarah's mistreating her. And so God comes in sort of a comfort to say, it will be okay. I will deal well with you. Okay, we can read it just like that. That is all that's there. However, I want us to also understand that that moment becomes so significant to a massive group of people in the world. Now, the Quran takes this story and expands it a bit, but we won't go into that. But so we know that the promise of Ishmael is not one that is made up. Like, that is in our Bible, and it comes right here from God's own angel. All right, look at that. We ended on time. I have two minutes. Is there any question about that that might be clarifying? Yes. Oh, a hierarchy. Um, you know, it's hard to say. Typically what happens, and we see this over and over again. I mean, Solomon, for one, had a huge harem. Um, leaders will just want to have a lot of kids. And they're just, you know, you can only have one child a year, you know, if you're, I mean, and no woman's a factory. So you need to, what typically happens because men's, <laughs> what I was going to say is men's investment in the bearing of a child is brief. Um, that, that creates a tradition of many wives for one man. Plus, men are more effectively, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, dispendable. 
um, or dispensable. You can, men go off and fight wars, right? So men are kind of raised up as defenders. Women are kept safe because they bear the children. And so it, it would have been very normal in these ancient cultures to have a lot more adult women than adult men. This is not like a 50-50 thing. There aren't like poor men somewhere without wives because this guy has a lot of wives. That was not the way it was. Those men are dying, right? They're out there fighting. And so it was very common for a man to go off to war and half of them die. Okay, well, what happens to the women? In a sense, I, I am, listen, I know I am treading a very fine line here. Because of the cultural reality, a woman without a husband was extremely vulnerable. It is sensible that part of this was also almost like social security in the sense of if you've got widows out there, they cannot fend for themselves. Bring them in, keep them safe, and also, by the way, bear some children imperfect, okay? However, there's a reality there that is different from our own in the sense that there are just so many fewer men than there were women for multiple, not good reasons, but reasonable reasons. So hierarchy of wives, not really. There is a hierarchy of children. So it's less about the mother and it's more about when children are born and which gender they are. What we will see in a few weeks, this will be next in 2020. The big problem that happens with Ishmael is he's older than Isaac. That's the problem. And so technically, even though Sarah is the first wife, so Sarah's in charge, if Ishmael's the firstborn son, Ishmael should be the heir. And so when Sarah ultimately conceives and bears Isaac, the issue for Sarah is not her own authority. She's got it. She's first wife. The issue is her son should be the heir, and he, and he would not have been in the hierarchy because he was not the oldest born son. And so ultimately, Sarah will send Hagar and Ishmael away, not because Sarah and Hagar are unclear about who's number one, but because Sarah wants her son to be the heir. Any sense? Oh, it's so good. It's so good. It's getting good. Thank you all. Have a happy Wednesday.